glass of water we have time for a few questions coming from the scusate eh, dopo un bicchiere d'acqua per il nostro professor Taylor abbiamo tempo per qualche domanda e qualche considerazione eh, ovviamente eh, siete assolutamente benvenuti a esporle in inglese nel caso in cui vogliate farle in italiano si passa dalle regole alle discrezionalità perché la tradurrò io in inglese per il professor Taylor il microfono dov'è? Alessandro Penati. The mic is arriving. John came up. <coughs> John? Yeah. Um, uh, three uh, uh, questions. One, uh, do you see inflationary targeting uh, as uh, sort of a form of Uh, going back for the Fed to rules uh, more in line with sort of inflationary target that the ECB is adopting, uh, in my view, because sort of uh, derives from the Bundesbank. Uh, second, you describe <coughs> to a swing of a pendulous uh, from uh, discretion to rules and uh, around 1980, and then back from rules to discretion beginning of 2001, and you identify the reason for the first swing as poor economic performances, whereas on the second, you say, well, endogenous, which I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Uh, in my view, the second swing was not an economic policy uh, failure, but was a stock market failure, and it was a crash of the internet. Uh, it is true that uh, it's not an economic performance, but in my view, the crash of internet affected so many Americans that in a certain sense was equivalent to an economic policy failure. I mean, you can hit people with high inflation, you can hit people by losing money in the stock market. So do you agree or not? Because if you do agree with my view, well, then you should be very pessimistic about the next swing back because the financial crisis has been perceived as, again, something in favor of discretion Uh, and uh, if you ju just look at the timing of QA1 and QA2, uh, it's more driven by the stock market. Actually, the, the timing with the stock market movement uh, surprised me fully very high. Okay. So, and sorry, uh, the last question is, what about financial markets in your discretion? Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the, the last 10 years, relative to the previous years, strikes me for uh, having a lot of Uh, say, new asset. Uh, if you look at from real estate to commodities, uh, now they are sort of uh, investment for everybody. So there are a lot of new prices, a lot of, say, contingent claims securities on which you can trade about, an, about everything. Should you keep in mind uh, and in, uh, should you keep in consideration this sort of... Uh, new sort of financial words in which you can actually have uh, say, more out of the broad securities about everything uh, in your uh, uh, discretion. Uh, sorry, in your rule. So uh, lots, of, uh, lots of points made. So I think to wrap them, some of them together, the, the narrative here, which we call the narrative, what actually happened, is exceedingly important uh, for, getting, for knowing how to exit or where to go. So, so my narrative really, if you like, puts a lot of emphasis on the policy itself. 
monetary policy being too stimulative, fiscal policy being too interventionist, where I think the, the, the other uh, narrative, which is you'll certainly hear from many public officials, is that things would have been worse had we not done all this. So that's, uh, that would be a line that you hear all over the place. And that will also be the line that's used to say QE1 or QE2 worked. It would have been worse without that. So it's a very hard um, uh, debate to win. But I think my, my, my observation, at least in the United States, is that debate is being won. The election we had in November showed a lot of um, sort of grassroots um, uh, view that all these policies weren't very helpful, that they're basically, we need to, to, to stop them. And I know the, the officials will continue with that story, but I look at the data, I look at the reaction I'm getting to, to, to my work, and it seems to me if we, if we just let the facts get out there and speak for themselves, and, and, and uh, as I'm trying to do, that we can get the right narrative. And then the other part of your question, I think, relates to something that I really have omitted in this talk, because I wanted to focus on monetary and fiscal policy. And that is all the, the regulatory policy, the, the issues related to um, the too big to fail, uh, the issues related to whether uh, derivative markets were unregulated or too little regulated. And I would say what I'd like to think about there is it's a similar story in that we had a lot of rules on the books with respect to financial regulation. In the United States, the commercial banks were the most heavily regulated entities in the financial sector, in my view, but, and they had hundreds of regulators sitting on their premises in, in the, say, the, say, the New York financial community. But there's where you saw a lot of the, um, the risks taken that we now question, and, and we should have questioned then. The regulators should have, if they were enforcing the rules that were on the books, should have taken care of those at the time. So I view uh, the regulatory side as falling very much into the same uh, kind of story that the we deviated from good rules um, for whatever reason. I don't know, vested interest, just government not working very well. Who knows all the reasons? And, and we got to get back to that as well. I think it's, it, but it can be counterproductive to start regulating all sorts of other stuff that had nothing to do with the crisis. And that's going to be a tendency. That's already what's happening uh, in the United States. Thank you very much. A couple of questions about um, Lehman Brothers' case and financial regulation. Uh, very interesting tonight, listening from you about the distinction between discretionary interventions versus rules. Right. Very often we instead try to confuse regulation with discretionary interventions, quite different things. What's your valuation about Lehman Brothers' discretionary decision not to intervene and what about, in your view, uh, we, it seems that, I mean, talking about Fulker uh, proposal about new financial market regulation, uh, regulation is not always, I mean, uh, uh, brought forward by today's work in, uh, in USA. So on, on Lehman Brothers, there's, um, I think, consistent with what I'm talking about, the discretionary policy uh, confused and, and led to more problems. Uh, so the way I think about it sometimes is let's go back to the Bear Stearns intervention, which was uh, the Federal Reserve used its balance sheet then to, uh, to rescue the creditors of Bear. 
I think at that point, if they had articulated, at least to some extent, what the policy would be going forward, and even uh, talked about, at least internally, the possibility that um, they wouldn't intervene with Lehman, um, then it could have been smoother. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, if anything, a logical person would say, if you intervene with Bear Stearns, you're going to intervene with Lehman. You're not going to let Lehman go to bankruptcy. So, so there wasn't preparation for that. So I, I view that as a, as a failure to lay out a strategy, um, at least in the most, it doesn't have to be a mathematical formula, that's ridiculous, but lay out a strategy that people can understand, at least to some extent, and so they're not so surprised. And I think that if they had done that, it could have been much smoother. The bankruptcy itself uh, is, is, has not been as complicated as many had thought. It was the surprise that was really damaging. And then, of course, the next day we, we went for AIG, and then we stopped again and used the TARP. The TARP itself um, was rolled out in a very uncertain way. It, it, the markets actually, most of the... The deterioration in the equity markets, uh, say the S&P 500, occurred not right at the Lehman, it's really at the TARP period, so the TARP uh, rollout. And of course, that's when you saw this amazing global uh, crunch. You know, all, this, all the equity markets just moved in tandem, and, and it's really it's a week or 10 days after Lehman, so that seems to me the chaotic rollout of the TARP um, had to do that. We were in the middle of a presidential election in the U.S. as well, which made it more complicated. So all, that's, all that to me says we need to get, have to get a more predictable uh, policy in place or we're going to go through the, the same kind of thing again. Uh, so uh, Volcker's proposals, um, my view is that he has a, a sense of, of, of uh, which is correct, which is basically take certain entities, commercial banks, narrow their focus a little bit, and then protect them through the, the, uh, through the lender of last resort, whatever it happens to be. But other financial institutions, which you're going to let take on more risks, then you, you don't have the same financial support, same public policy support. So that's what he's trying to suggest. I think it, it's difficult to do that in practice, unfortunately, but, um, but we'll see how it works out. Uh, my question is about monetization that you touched upon uh, when you uh, uh, refer to the impressive increase in bank reserves, the banking system as a result of uh, quantitative easing starting in 2008. Um, there's a conventional reading of the effects of QE as being inevitably inflationary. And this, of course, is related to the conventional reading that um, bank reserves are money and too much money chasing few, few goods is inevitably inflationary. But if, uh, if one considers carefully uh, the way these monetary operations are carried on, uh, one would get a very different picture as um, banks uh, sell treasuries to the Fed and acquire reserves. This is boils down to nothing more than a portfolio shift. Which, and um, and, and uh, the purchase of financial assets doesn't create aggregate demand and therefore will not impact on prices. It may affect the yield curve, but not inflation. And there's no evidence uh, that there is a, any inflationary pressure considering that QE started in 2008. And I would be interested in your opinion on this. Thanks. So the, quite right, uh, the, the money that's created through the quantitative easing, as I mentioned, is high-powered money or monetary base. 
It's not uh, M1 or M2. It's, it's, it's the extra money the banks are holding. The, um, and we have uh, theories that connect that change in the monetary base to the broader aggregates. And when they do increase, you will have inflation. So, so it's not simply that gigantic increase in the balance sheet that is going to cause inflation. Um, it could give expectations of inflation, but the inflation will come when that balance sheet gets translated into expansions of the money supply. Okay, so, and that's going to require that the Fed reduce that balance sheet. So I, I showed you the picture. It went from 8 to 15 billion up to um, over uh, 1.5 That has to be brought back down. Right, eventually has to be brought out. Other, you will have a massive expansion of the money supply, and then you will have the inflation. So that's what people are concerned about. That's what I'm concerned about. So how does the Federal Reserve reduce its balance sheet? It's got to do the reverse. It's got to instead of buy mortgages, it's got to sell mortgages. Instead of buy medium treasuries, got to sell them. And it's going to be wary about how fast it does that. The markets are going to be wary. The banks have these extra reserves right now, which they seem to be sitting on. If they're pulled back too fast, that could be contractionary. So you have a, you're, you're in a situation where the balance sheet has to come down, um, I believe, to get back to regular good old policy. But if it comes down too slowly, it could be damaging. If it doesn't come down fast enough, it causes inflation. So I think of it as a risk issue. Now, there's one other thing I would like to add here um, to answer your question. The, the fact that that balance sheet is so big um, at least gives the expectation that interest rates will remain near zero for longer. So, so if you're in the financial community and you're trying to think how long in the future will the Fed have rates zero, quantitative easing, too, increase, must increase your expectation of rates lower in the future. And so given that, you now you have to think about the, the impacts of inflation there. And I think, in addition, you have the international effects, because this was a very interconnected world, and the very low rates in U.S. or Europe make it more difficult for emerging markets or other countries to raise their rates as they have to if they want to contain inflation. So there is a, there is a spread, if you like, around the world of the impacts of this policy, and we're beginning to see that already, I believe. You're beginning to see the commodity prices you're seeing the inflationary pressures in emerging markets. You're seeing them trying to prevent, they don't, they don't want their exchange rates to appreciate really rapidly for a host of reasons. So they're probably delaying their monetary tightening and that causes a more global inflation. So I think there's a lot of risks here on the inflation front. It's, I doubt it's gonna be as instantaneous as, as uh, some are worrying about, but I think it's definitely there. And until this balance sheet is, is uh, reduced back to normal, those risks will remain. Um, the idea that uh, there should be rules rather than discretion in uh, macroeconomic policy is at the very heart of the German uh, approach to macroeconomics. Uh, and has become uh, the European approach, uh, with one difference uh, relative to what used to be in the United States. Uh, the difference is that uh, these rules are embedded in uh, treaties or constitutions. The Maastricht Treaty, both on monetary and fiscal policy, the German constitution that calls for uh, uh, 
budget balance uh, uh, eventually, and which Germany is now trying to. Do you think that writing the rules in a constitution is a good idea, and isn't that a good way to respond to the criticism that James Tobin used to uh, raise to those who want rules and independent central banks and leaving it to technocrats to decide about yeah. these things? The objection of James Tobin was, I am for democracy. Are you for democracy? Yes, I think it's a, okay, a very good question, and I think um, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think in the case of the Federal Reserve in the United States, that's in a way why I mentioned some legislation that would require they report on their strategy for setting interest rates. The, and, and it'd be accountable if they deviate. I think it's important in that that, that the Congress of the United States not, in, not tell them to do a particular type of monetary policy. That should be the job of the monetary authorities. But once they establish it, then I think they have to be accountable or report back to the, to the Congress. It, in a you know, democracy, you want the people to exercise their authority over an independent agency, like the Federal Reserve. But you don't want them to get into the day-to-day -day running of the details. Then you have all sorts of problems that's caused by that. So I think this idea of, of reporting and being accountable is sort of just the, the right way to not get into the micromanaging, but at the same time exercise the necessary uh, political uh, control. Um, the Masters Treaty, though, must make you scratch your head a little bit, right? Because here you had some rules in the treaties, and they basically seemed to me were ignored. So here, I mean, this is, again, I didn't mention this, but isn't that an example of the damages caused by deviations from rules? That seems to me it's pretty clear that those deviations are a large part of the problem that um, exists in Europe at this point in time. So here, it's, it's somehow, it's, whether it's enforceability or it's just you got to have people understand that those rules are important. This narrative I'm talking is part of that. But it's, it seems to me it's got to go beyond that. And then finally, in the United States, for many, many years, there's been talk about an amendment to our Constitution for the fiscal side, a balanced budget amendment. And uh, there'll be, there are proposals coming out for that again, but that's very difficult to do. Um, so I think focusing on legislation like the Federal Reserve Act, uh, which has similar features to what you're talking about, is the way I would pursue it. And then for, for fiscal policy, just take the necessary actions to get, um, the, get back to sound policy. Uh, just, a uh, just a question on uh, Euro. If I look at the chart from OECD showing impact in the Eurozone, uh, it seems to me that uh, Euro can't work at all. Because uh, I see Germany on one side uh, and Ireland on totally different side and so forth. So what is uh, your opinion on that? Rick? Yeah. Okay, so that's um, um, a very important question. I think that um, for that chart, we probably would have been better off if the overall interest rate were higher, right? Like we saw it was too low, too low by my definition overall. So that would have made the, um, the excesses in uh, Ireland, Spain, and Greece much less severe. Um, and I don't think it would have been at all harmful for the other countries. Maybe, you know, just they're just okay at that point. So if you like, that's, that's one of those cases where 
you don't always know where the, um, where the effects of an easy money policy will take place. Sometimes it's going to be in the commodity market, sometimes it's going to be in certain parts of the country, housing. If it's housing, then it's going to depend on what the housing market is like locally. In the United States, the California, Nevada, um, Arizona got the brunt of the housing market. The, the over, you know, the, the boom and the bust, that's really where it was. Where, that's why their unemployment is so high in those states right now and why the economic situation is bad. So if you like, they may have been like the, in fact, people say this now, like the Ireland, uh, Greece, and Spain. But I think if you had the policy right, then you would have prevented that, at least a large fraction of it. So I don't think there's any reason why a single uh, currency, single interest rate, either in the United States or in the Eurozone is a problem. That's not the problem here are these excesses on the fiscal side or the monetary, overall monetary side not being rule-like or set appropriately. It's not, it's not the single currency that's the problem in my view. We have time for a last question. Professor Taylor, <clears throat> just an easy question. Who do you see out there that would be able to lead the U.S. to a more uh, rule-based policy? <laughs> you know, I think that um, it goes beyond individuals. In fact, um, so my whole story here, I didn't focus on individuals very much. I did mention Paul Volcker. I did mention individuals. And, and, and the leadership is very, very important. I think to some extent the leadership comes into play when it gets really tough, like saying no to a bailout. That requires extraordinary courage and leadership. Uh, and so, so where those people are, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes wonder, w weren't there more people like that you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago than there are now? I'm not really sure. But the way I'm trying to look at this is really more just looking at the forces of history, what we can do as a democracy with respect to the laws or the rule of law, and, um, and just hope the right leaders uh, come up and implement what we're trying to do. Thank you. John, thank you for this magnificent intellectual tour de force.